You're listening to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm your host, Chris Martin. My guest today is Heather Hying. She and her husband, Brett Weinstein, formerly taught biology at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. After some highly publicized protests in the middle of 2017, they both left. Heather now describes herself as a professor in exile. Hi, Heather. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris, for having me. So it's been about a year since you and your husband, Brett Weinstein, were exiled from Evergreen State College, and there have been many accounts of what happened, both in podcasts and articles and magazines and newspapers. So instead of rehashing that, I thought I would jump to the question of what you and Brett have been doing since you became professors in exile. Well, there are a lot of ways to answer that question. Um, Maybe I could start by saying something about the unique educational experience and therefore faculty experience that Evergreen allowed before it went off the rails, uh, and which I truly hope, if not Evergreen, uh, some other school can pick up and model as an educational an educational model going forward. Uh, so there were full-time programs at Evergreen, which meant that students didn't go from a class, say, on evolutionary biology, which I might have been teaching, to OCHEM, to art history. They were doing whatever they were doing full-time. And it last their full-time experience with a professor or professors and their peers, their, their student colleagues, lasted for a quarter or two quarters or three quarters. And so at its most enriching, these programs could be communities that within a week of cohering, everyone knew each other's names and you were beginning to establish trust. And at the end of a full academic year, you'd really gone deep, both deep and broad and uh, and discovered discovered things you didn't even know you were looking for, and asked questions that didn't appear to be on the table. You know, maybe weren't written into the curriculum in the first place. Uh, but the the combination of a long period of time together, along with um, not assuming trust and not assuming that you should believe anyone on the basis of their authority, say because they had a PhD or because they uh, claimed to have thought about something before, meant that. Really, it was possible, and and I, I truly do miss this part of of teaching and of being at Evergreen. It was possible to create classrooms and field experiences where, when people, you know, beyond the first couple of days, when students or faculty said something that wasn't quite right, or that uh, had an assumption built into it that they weren't clear on. You could say, and you should say, and it was you know, in my classrooms, in Brett's classrooms, in some of the other faculty at Evergreen's classrooms, it was really expected that you say, no, here's why. You know, no disrespect to you. Let us not conflate uh, my disagreement with you with a personal dislike of you. But uh, that that isn't true. Or what would you need what else would need to be true in order for that to be true? Let's figure this out. Uh, that a sort of an epistemological approach to science and to everything, a questioning of what the foundations of our knowledge is and how it is that we're making claims of truth was the the foundation of how I taught and how Brett taught. And in combination with having lots of time together, students loved it, actually. They were shocked by it at first. They weren't certain of what to do with it, many of them, given the climate that 
parenting has taken in in the U.S. and the K-12 schools. Uh, many of them were not expecting, and it doesn't feel good at first. It's uncomfortable, right? You don't. No one really likes being told that they're wrong. Although after you've been told you're wrong a few times and you've emerged at the other side with a better model of your world, it's actually really empowering. So that that part of what was possible at Evergreen, I miss. And I think both Brett and I have begun to do some of that in different ways out there in the world through writing and through speaking. There's no replacement for the deep dive into community that having hours and hours and hours, week upon week, month upon month with one another can grant. But um, I hope I hope that uh, while Evergreen does not appear to be doing a 180 that it would need to do in order to retain its uh, the educational model that allowed it, that some other schools can look at this and say, you know, actually, this is a model that allows for diversity of all sorts uh, of demographic markers, sure, of course, uh, but also of thought, of ideas, of approaches, of backgrounds, of values. And we can go forward seeking together answers with a sort of shared in my case, evolutionary toolkit, scientific toolkit, aesthetic toolkit, if you like, any number of toolkits uh, that once you share those toolkits, you can you can move forward into the future. So um, we're doing that in a totally different forum now, and uh, and it doesn't completely replace the experience by any means of teaching at Evergreen, but it is it it has some similarities remarkably when you say you're doing it in a totally different forum are you talking about the interviews you're doing and the panel discussions you're participating in or something else so far it's been interviews panels writing um some um speaking at conferences that um are not out there in the wider world but are reaching um admittedly still small numbers of people in the moment, but um, not all college students. So, you know, the, the diversity of demographic uh, that is expanded in those uh, in those conferences is that it's not just people who are trying to get college degrees at the moment. Uh, so sort of a, a broader education. Um, both Brett and I have thought about doing, for instance, online courses, um, concentrated, dedicated educational retreats, either in the field, uh, you know, either someplace like tropical rainforest, the Amazon, or elsewhere. Uh, there, are, there are challenges, and maybe the biggest one is that no matter how intensive and immersive you go, five days or even two weeks or even you know, three or four weeks, you know, how many adults can afford that? How many adults can afford to spend two or three or four weeks doing such a thing? And it still isn't a full year. Right. So is four or five days together enough to really get uh, an enhanced, deep understanding of what an evolutionary system looks like and how, how to look out for that and how to consider what to do when you, when you see one coming at you? It might be, um, but it's not really enough time to build community that lasts. Uh, so that's, that is something that uh, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how we build going forward. It's interesting. My wife briefly taught at a school called Chewankee on the coast of Maine. I don't know to what degree the lessons there were based in an evolutionary framework, but it did seem like they used the same model. It was located more or less in the middle of a forest near the coast, and there were many unstructured experiences that involved just going out and exploring the ecology 
It was founded about a hundred years ago. There might be other schools like that. I'm not sure. I didn't know about the existence of those schools uh, until my wife t um, told me about them. And as you say, you do have to be able to afford that time. So if you're a high school student, you normally have to be able to afford a semester off, but financially afford a private school like that. And I think one of the unique things about Evergreen, as I understand it, is that it was a public university, but it gave you these experiences. That was, in fact, one of the one of the main reasons that I took the job at Evergreen. I was lucky enough when I was applying for faculty jobs to end up with a choice uh, in offers, and I cho chose Evergreen over an you know far better paying offer at a private liberal arts college, in part because I didn't just want to be teaching rich kids, and I know that's a generalization, um, and that's not entirely what uh, what you have in the student body at private liberal arts schools, but it's certainly far more true than at a public liberal arts college. Um, and really, it was one of my true joys at Evergreen to work with students who are socioeconomically diverse, enough so that, for instance, there's a, uh, there's a federal program called the Gilman Scholarship, which is designed specifically to give students who are um, from poor enough backgrounds to be eligible for Pell Grants, whether or not they actually receive Pell Grants. If anyone who is eligible to receive a Pell Grant who gets accepted into a study abroad program, such as the ones that I created and ran uh, several times at Evergreen, uh, you can apply for a Gilman to get up to $5,000 to contribute to your study abroad. Uh, fees. And that in combination with me working uh, with students in advance during the summers before, after I'd accepted them into my program, but before classes had actually started, I worked with students to um, hone their, basically their grant writing skills. And every year that I did study abroad, the uh, Gilman scholarships at Evergreen jumped um, practically in order of magnitude. You know, I had, I had six, seven, eight students every year that I taught study abroad receive these. And uh, it was an incredible joy to take students, many of whom had never been outside of the state of Washington, had never had a passport before, had imagined other worlds for themselves. But students who had grown up so poor, for instance, that they had they had eaten roadkill because that was all their family could afford. And now I get to take them to, to Panama, to Ecuador, to the Galapagos, to Amazon. It was extraordinary. That really is extraordinary, and I think that's a meaningful experience, not just for those students, but for their families as well, to see their their children, if they're first-generation students, do things like that and not just sit in classrooms. I certainly had that experience coming from India. I needed a very large scholarship, and fortunately I received one, and I was able to not only study on campus, but do one study abroad program. Where did you go? Oh, I went to England and France. It was an art history program. We went with a professor from the college. Uh, it was quite intense. We did some work almost every day. We toured England for the most part. We spent three weeks in France, and uh, I still have memories from that program. There were three courses. One was a survey of art in England, one was on cathedrals, and one was on 19th century painting. So very different from what you do. But but extraordinary. And you know, material that you would learn much differently entirely in the abstract in a classroom half a world away. Right, you you go and you mix the actual experience with the travel and being in a place you've never been before, and being in a culture, meeting people, eating food, having you know even in England where you you already know the language, just just even word use and and dialect and accent that's different is in all of it's a learning experience. It's it's entirely a learning experience. And actually, I was thinking earlier today about why. Why safe spaces feel like such 
such the opposite of what we should be doing for students on campuses. And I think, I think part of it is this, that it is the opposite of what travel is. And if, if you, like I, believe that travel is one of the best educations that a person can get, or even if you just believe that travel is educational, even if you don't feel like ranking it and you just think, okay, travel is an education, um, because it exposes you to things not only that you don't know, but that you don't even know that you don't know. You, you come across serendipity is a big part of travel. And so you come across things you didn't even know to wonder about. And then you're there in the moment with the experience or the person or the food or whatever it is. And a safe space goes exactly the opposite direction. It says the only, it, it, it argues that we need to control everything. And only by controlling everything uh, can we move forward. And my feeling is by controlling everything, you limit all possible outcomes only to those that you have already imagined. Yeah, that, that is limiting. I feel like safe spaces, in my experience at the universities I've been to, have not actually taken that route. I feel like if I were to look into the students who use the safe spaces, I would expect they were also students who did study abroad programs. Uh, they may have been different at Evergreen State. Uh, is that what they were like there? I, I don't actually know. I don't know that we even had things called safe spaces. Um, I'm, I'm thinking more generally in the abstract. Um, and I, you know, I, I do think that there is an inconsistency in that many of the students who are most vocally advocating for things like trigger warnings and safe spaces and uh, decrying cultural appropriation and such are actually, frankly, the economically privileged students, uh, that many of them come from upper middle class or, or upper class homes. And so, yes, in general, uh, unless you're in a place where faculty or staff are actively working to help lower income students do study abroad. Usually it's going to be those students who are who are traveling as well. Um, but as as I'm sure anyone who's traveled uh, outside of of a bubble knows there are lots of ways to travel and you can do so. You can do so and still keep your cultural blinders on and make sure not to actually expose yourself to ideas or things or people or languages or food that you don't want to be exposed to. Uh, so even though I do think it's it's some of the same students who um, advocate for safe spaces and who do study abroad, I don't think that puts the lie to the idea that they are opposite types of experiences. I agree. I feel like our society has changed just sociologically to such a degree that upper middle class students often have very predictable, comfortable lives. Not all of them, but many of them. And even small problems, well, what many people would consider small problems can seem like big problems to them in college, and it's not entirely their fault, it's partly a societal change. Anyway, I thought I'd go jump back to the topic of, of the panels that uh, where you're presenting. I know some of what you're presenting is ideas, ideas about exposing children to unstructured, well, children and college students, adolescents, young adults to unstructured experiences, are, are, is there anything else you're doing in terms of trying to change the way colleges and universities are administered and the way classes are taught? With regard to panels, um, well, I've talked a bit about uh, the culture of victimhood and about uh, identity politics and why I think that identity politics is, um, like safe spaces and trigger warnings, the exactly the wrong way to go about actually achieving uh, unity and equality and and true diversity. Um, with regard to how you know how colleges and universities might might respond in this moment to this 
cultural move that is afoot. I don't think I've really spoken publicly about it much. Uh, There's a piece that Brett and I wrote in the Washington Examiner in which we uh, touched on it a little bit back in December of 2017. But um, the one thing I would say is this, that this there's a there's a trend now that's fashionable to accede to student demands and to um, to add admin uh, in diversity and equity and to create safe spaces and to create student centers representing various demographics LGBTQ and um, and students of color and native students and and on and on and on and um, that's pretty much everywhere at this point. And certainly it's what we saw happen with extraordinary rapidity at Evergreen under the um, under the leadership of the new president starting, well, I guess now it's three years ago. Um, any college, and the shining example of this would be University of Chicago, that does the opposite and that says, you know what? We actually stand for... Um, Enlightenment values. We are we are seeking truth. We are going to maximize the search for truth, and in so doing, we will find other values. But that is that is our top value, uh, rather than proclaiming that we are, for instance, as Evergreen has and as other schools have, and as Jonathan Haidt has has identified this as a sort of a binary choice that uh, many schools are making. You can you can do a search for truth or a search or a quest for social justice, but you cannot simultaneously maximize both. The vast majority of schools out there are doing the latter, are, 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 are proclaiming, are advertising to their potential students and to their current students and enforcing on their current faculty and staff and advertising to future faculty and staff. We are about social justice. And that comes at a high, high cost. And I know anecdotally, and I also know not anecdotally, that students are turning away. That um, at Evergreen, many students uh, effectively looked looked at that and said, "Not for me." That is that does not sound. And you know, here I'm putting words into most people's mouths. Although I've heard these words from a few people, that doesn't sound like an education to me. So in that climate, if you if you act like University of Chicago and you say, "We actually um, we have a creed. Uh, we are we are going to seek seek truth, and we are." not going to let anyone disrupt another individual's right to speak. You may protest. You may protest, but if that protest ends up being disruptive such that you disable another student or faculty, whatever, but another student's right to hear or ability to hear what someone else is saying, uh, that is not okay. And so if you if you made that uh, like an opening salvo, a a a motto, if you would, um, of the university and said, come come check us out if this looks appealing to you. And if it doesn't, by all means, don't come here. But we're going to hold you to it. And if you end up thinking that it's your right to disrupt other, other students' rights to hear ideas that you find uncomfortable once you're here, you are going to be asked to leave and, you're, and you will leave. I think that in this that if, if every university did that, there would be little economic advantage in being first, um, but there would still be great advantage intellectually in any university that did that. But especially right now when so few schools are doing that, when so many schools are doing the fashionable thing and uh, hiring more and more admin and staffing more and more offices in so-called equity and inclusion, 
any school that did the opposite, I think, would actually not just uh, be uh, be supporting intellectual inquiry, but also end up winning economically because they'd get more students applying. As I understand it, there's been a drop in enrollment at Evergreen State. Do you think that's actually going to have repercussions at Evergreen State and they may hire a new president or new administrators there? The, uh, the drop in enrollment shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. The Evergreen needs a new president. Um, I think only with a new president and only with the right new president uh, could could this be turned around. Uh, one of the things that isn't much discussed that has has happened under this president, under Bridges, is when he came in, there were four divisions of the college. This is a little bit inside baseball, but given that this is uh, kind of an academically focused podcast, I think this is okay. Um there were four divisions of the college, um, pretty standard uh, for, for institutions of higher ed. There was academics, which included all the faculty and curriculum and things like science support and, and arts and, uh, and such. There were student affairs, which um, things like the registrar and um, child care, the radio station and the dorms and you know, housing and food and everything. Um, finance and admin, which is HR and personnel and facilities and um and such, and advancement, which is basically money making, uh, which at a at a public school with no endowment to speak of is important, and it was never it's never been a strong suit. Um, so, Bridges, who is suffering tremendous financial losses because as a public school, um, a lot of the money comes from uh, tuition and um, and. Uh, some from the state, but the state isn't exactly pushing money towards Evergreen right now either, given what's been going on. Um, he has expanded admin. He has added three entirely new divisions and um, weakened two of the pre-existing ones and disappeared student affairs entirely and swallowed up its activities into the other ones that he's created. And the three new divisions that he's created, I'm not looking at it, so I'm not going to have the wording exactly right, but they're effectively, one is in social justice, it's equity and inclusion, I believe is what it's called, maybe diversity and inclusion. One of them is effectively public relations. So he's got an entire division of the college dedicated to public relations. And one of them is in indigenous arts and education, which, um, you know, it's it's hard on the face of it to say that shouldn't that shouldn't be, um, but the idea that that should be at an equal level to academics um, further weakens academics, and it looks like further nod to the social justice activists. So, um, I would say, obviously, increasing admin at an absurd rate at the point that he is having to fire staff, cancel arts programs, um, fire faculty. Uh, not not move forward with dorm building, that the college is in grave financial straits, and it can all point back to to a basically turning turning one's back on the actual liberal arts ideals that made Evergreen so different from other schools. Uh, you know, an actually affordable liberal arts college in which full-time programs were the key, whether or not they were field-based or, you know, classroom-based, full-time programs. In the humanities, that might have meant, you know, six, eight, ten hours of seminar a week. Um, but regardless, that is no longer uh primarily what Evergreen is about. It's increasingly looking more and more standard, sort of vanilla university. It's a college, not a university, but um, vanilla 
vanilla college with um, huge amount of admin, uh, most of which it's not clear why a college should need it or would want it. And the college was doing fine without it. And the college is under financial straits. And now there are a whole lot more vice presidents and staff to support at the same time that staff and faculty and arts, arts programs in particular are being cut. Do you think the board of directors at Evergreen or alumni at Evergreen or parents of even current students may have some influence over the trajectory it takes? The board of trustees should have influence. The president answers to the board of trustees and the board of trustees answer to the governor. It is one of the uh, extant questions that those of us who care deeply about the school and are still affiliated one way or another with it, um, or who recently have been, are, are scratching our heads about, you know, why why is a school that was unique and that could expand on its uniqueness and actually, I mean, really a turnaround right now for Evergreen in which an embrace of the opposite thing that it's been embracing could bring in, I, I feel certain that it would bring in students and money, that that funding, um, you know, maybe from alums, but really Evergreen isn't that old and the alums don't tend to have a lot of money. And so, it, you know, endowment isn't going to be the way that Evergreen ends up growing. But in terms of private donors who are looking at the debacle that is Evergreen and um, especially those with any connection to it, either because they went there or their kids went there or their grandkids went there um, and who are wondering how it could be saved um, with, with a new president and with an explicit uh, an explicit goal of being a college that seeks truth as opposed to social justice. I think it could not only turn around, but actually begin to climb again in um, in both certainly in enrollment, but also the ranks of schools that actually make a difference in people's lives. Yes, I think one of the things parents value, well, a small set of parents, but small but growing set of parents, is putting their children in unstructured situations. I think now many parents have realized that play has become too structured. You can call it free-range parenting. I know that's one name that's been used for it. John Haidt's upcoming book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is partly about that. And I think he interviews parents who are trying to get their children to do that as well. So there's definitely a market for the kind of education that Evergreen provides. Well, let me just let me interrupt and say that um, Evergreen is not explicitly about being unstructured. And I wouldn't say that there are any, there are a couple of programs that are, are kind of advertised as unstructured, but those those are not ones that I would I had ever recommended students take because you can do that on your own dime. Why, why, why pay college um, to, to do nothing for you just to give you credits? So I think the, the value of lack of structure is huge, um, especially very early in life, um, but also being told in college and you know throughout life, uh, you you will need to find your own questions. And for instance, that may involve spending half a day out in the field figuring out what your question is, as opposed to me saying, "I've got a list of three questions here. Choose one." So that is far more educational, and that's a kind of lack of structure. But it doesn't it doesn't mean that there's you know whole swaths of time that are fundamentally unstructured. And there are many many. Um, successful programs that I saw over the years at Evergreen that had very little unstructured time at all. I tended to, uh, because I was interested in 
you know, because I was teaching science and the scientific method and epistemology and hypothesis generation. Hypothesis generation emerges from observation and creativity and time when your conscious brain is offline. And so I was cultivating that um, quite intentionally. Uh, but there were, you know, the, the amount of time that Evergreen programs allowed faculty to have with students and students to have one another might have meant just long periods of time in seminar or long periods of time in the art studio or the metal shop or the woodworking shop, both of which have also been cut um, with the with the most recent cuts. Uh, so I wouldn't say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I wouldn't say that lack of structure is what um, was what made Evergreen unique or even was a hallmark of really hardly any Evergreen programs. It was the the sheer amount of time that you had to build, to be with students and therefore to build ideas through a variety of means. I should have been more specific. By unstructured, I did in fact mean situations where students were placed in, in conditions of uncertainty. That was probably a better, would probably be a better way to phrase it. Right. And I, and I did that, but most, most faculty don't. I mean, it's just not part of what most, most of the curriculum looks like. I think, I think it's not, you know, it's, it's not in most people's sort of pedagogical toolkit. Um, but I would argue the younger the kid is, you know, I've never, I've never taught K-12 and I don't have any interest in it, but certainly um, kindergartners, first graders, second graders, unstructured play is where they are learning how to be them, how to interact, how to be social beings, how to be human, how, who they are. And, uh, you know, the, the less structure the younger they are, I think, is um, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's valuable. Yes, in fact, when I was teaching a course on happiness, I had a section about that. I ended up removing it for the syllabus to add a component about romantic relationships, which was more relevant for the age group I was teaching. But I try to cover that in brief. When I do teach that course, I try to cover it. Anyway, it looks like it's about time to wrap up. This is a short podcast. We do half an hour instead of an hour. Do you have any closing thoughts? It's been a pleasure talking to you. I think uh, this conversation could go on for a, a long time, but I don't have anything in particular to sum up with, nope. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. You can find Heather Hying's website at heatherhying.com, and she's also on Twitter at Heather E. Hying. Hying is spelt H-E-Y-I-N-G. You can also find some of her recent panel appearances on YouTube. I hope some of you were able to attend the Open Mind Conference. If you weren't able to attend, you can find videos of the conference sessions on the Heterodox Academy Facebook page. Heather was a participant in the first session, and a number of people who have appeared in previous episodes of this podcast, including Rick Schwader, John McWhorter, and John Zimmerman, were on various panels at the conference. My next two guests on this podcast are author Robert Wright and sociologist Fabio Rojas. So I hope you'll join me for those episodes. Thanks for listening. <music>